This is a Cherish podcast, and I'm your host, Michael Boudreau. I'll be taking you for an inside look behind the glamorous facade of the interior design industry. At a time when every aspect of the business, from sourcing to trends to marketing to dealing with clients, is undergoing rapid change. Ever since founding his firm in Paris in 2000, Jean-Louis Daigneault has brought a cool contemporary edge to French glamour and applied his distinctive take on French style to projects around the world. His work is always lush, but never overdone, contemporary, but always inclusive of the past, and bold, yet always comfortable. His projects have been published in virtually every major magazine, often on the cover. His work always incorporates artisanal elements and sumptuous materials, custom pieces, and dazzling decorative effects. Yet he prides himself on coming up with practical solutions and always serving the needs of his clients. He's designed furniture, lighting, and accessories for Baker Furniture, George Smith, Jean de Marie, and numerous other companies. His new book, Destinations from Rizzoli, charts his work on 18 projects around the world, spaces both grand and intimate, in buildings both historic and new, and in styles ranging from urbane to rustic. Yet all have that special Denio touch that proves that high French style is a global force. So welcome, Jean-Louis. Hello. Thank you, Michael. It's so good to see you again. And congratulations on your so book. Good to see you. Thank you so and much. Jean-Louis, you know what's interesting to me? One of the things is you talk in the book, and I've heard you say this before, that you consider yourself a storyteller. And I'd love if you to talk a little bit about that, how you see yourself as presenting the story of your clients. You know, it's just like in life, you know, human being normally is made of repetition. And I think repetition is, is actually quite boring. And so I want to make sure every day when I go to work that I still do the same job, but in a slightly different way. And so for that matter, I always try to write a story about each job. So it becomes really site specific. It becomes material specific, finishes specific, emphasize also the location of the site. And for that matter, I, yes, I really enjoy having some very specific goals, you know, and specific ways to tackle each project. Right, because there's nothing cookie cutter about your work. This whole book, there is such a diversity. Another thing you say in the book is that you always, right at the beginning, you look for flaws and mistakes. And I'd love you to talk about that a little bit. Exactly, Michael. I think when you do a design, you actually don't, don't put just sugar coating, you know, on, on the nice bits, you know, you actually need to work the, the awkward, uh, parts and turn a default into a quality. And then certainly, you know, everything turns out to be flawless. It's very important never to ignore the flows, you know, because the flows always transcribe, you know, within, within an atmosphere or within a lifestyle, you know, so you need to work on the flows in order to actually enjoy the beauty. Well, I think if you pretend the flaws aren't there, they're going to reassert themselves sooner or later. So <laughs> Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Just like in the human being, you know? Yes. Now, Jean-Louis, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about your early days, because as I know, having worked with you over the years, you have done some amazing projects, the scale of which is 
Impressive. But I think when you first started out, one of your first projects, I mean, was much smaller. I think it was almost like you describe it as almost like a garden shed. So talk a little about your early years. Like who was the person who really first came to you and said, I want you to work on my project? I always think, you know, whether it's a garage, it's a studio, you know, is if you have something to say, you know, start saying it early and try to take great photograph of it, you know, to illustrate your goal, you know, the best you can. Try to get it exposed. And from starting in a shoebox, you know, you eventually get, you know, to two shoeboxes and then three shoeboxes, you know. And uh, I say also that there's no big and small projects, you know, in my heart, you know, they're all totally equal. But you have to start somewhere, you know, and uh, start with no complex, take design risk. Don't try to duplicate anything you've actually seen in someone else's job, because otherwise you already have trouble, you know, to, to impose your own style, you know. And if you believe in your own style and if you have customer to believe in your own style, trust the journey because you'll be in the future respected for that. You know, you will never be respected from doing a pale copy of someone else's job. You know, you will always always be more respected from having your own point of view. And the more you can actually realize, you know, your point of view in many different ways, you know, it can be a booth on an interior design show, you know, it can be a friend who's asking you, you know, to decorate their living room, you know, it can be someone else who's asking you about a bedroom. What matters is to be able to exercise and to produce as often as possible. It's just like, professional athletes, they become great by repetition. And I think in design is the same way. The more you practice, the more it becomes a second nature and the more you can actually push the limit of your own design and take those design risks and get to the next step of, of your own career, you know? And was it, I, I think it's totally true. It's like they say in the theater, there's no such thing as a small role. If you can bring your stamp, you will be noticed and stand out. And I think exactly. also- it's probably now easier for designers because of Instagram. Exactly. When you started out, you had to be published in many yes. of the international magazines. Now there's not so many yeah. of them, sadly. And but, you had to deal with the publishing, you know, rejection too. Yeah. Where today you can be your own publisher, you know. It's so true. it's and whoever loves you follows you, you know. Right. So how fantastic is that? It is fantastic. When you were starting out in 2000. Was it hard at first? I mean, obviously you work, like you said, work with a friend or whatever, because you have a very, I wouldn't say extravagant, but it's a very detailed way you approach a room. I mean, it's like every detail is thought about, the finishes, there's a lot of artisanal things in your work. Was it hard for you to convince clients to trust you at the beginning? No, I think, you know, if you really believe in what you're selling, if you really believe in what you're conceiving, and there's something actually pleasant out of it. And, you know, you go to a dress store, you know, you find a cute lamp, you know, you spray paint it in a different color, you do a custom shade, you put it on the right piece. And you just like, you just do with the materials you have. You know, you don't need pieces with pedigree. You don't need mm -hmm. fancy things coming from fancy galleries. You just try to illustrate, you know, your vision with what you have. And when there's truth in design, people can see the truth. If there's something which is, extra natural out of what you're delivering, the clients will just go for it, you know? And uh, 
I must say, the first jobs that I did were quite classical because, you know, when you're young, if you know a bit about history of art, that's how you get your first jobs because no one will ever hire you for something highly conceptual when you're just right. starting your firm, where if you have a little bit of an academic background or academic interest, that's where you have more jobs opportunities. Right, right. Well, it's so interesting. You mentioned in the book, when you were starting out, one of the big influences, and I think you worked with him for a bit, was Henri Samuel. And then you also mentioned Alberto Pinto. Were you looking at their work when you were young and as a student? How did that evolve that you became so influenced by them? And what was it about that really affected you? I never worked for anyone. Oh, interesting. I didn't realize that. Yeah, it's because I did an internship, you know, for someone who was who made, you know, the two weeks internship quite miserable to me, you know, and I decided <laughs> that I would because I was starting from scratch, I decided, okay, let's just really start from scratch. And because I was worried that, you know, in the mid thirties you get the comfort, you know, of a salary, you know, mm -hmm. if you're employed somewhere and it will be even harder to start your own firm. I think today, you know, and with all that craftsmen, you know, which coming back on track, you know, everyone can start their business early on. I met Henri Samuel when I was very young and it was before going to school and because I wanted to suggest him to actually train me, but he was actually too old and without enough jobs at the time anymore. He was you know, winding to, down. Exactly. But what an amazing person because... What I really appreciated is the level of eclecticism and the level of interest and curiosity in that end culture within one single person. Absolutely fantastic person. Absolutely fantastic designer, collector, and visionaire. And Alberto, I was completely fascinated with the destinations, the fact that he could have the same type of level of quality and something very even, no matter where it was, you know, if it was in Cairo, if it was in Brazil, if it was in Paris, if it was in London, certainly, you know, he was completely adapting to the local flavor with that same sense of detail and that same sense of quality. And so I, I realized that how fantastic that it makes your work so diverse, certainly, you know, you don't do the same thing, the same style, you know, whether it's a 200 square feet, you know, or 2000 square feet. That's what I love about writing some specific story per jobs. And, and that's what I really enjoy with Alberto Pinto's work. Yeah. And that's something I want to ask you about is like, because your rooms, your houses, your apartments that you do all have, like I was mentioning, these very beautiful materials like straw marquetry or parchment, French polished wood. And in Paris, those skills, those workshops still exist. I mean, a lot of American designers I know have told me they have a frustration with finding artisans to execute things, whether it's upholsters or whatever. I know you have that in Paris, but has it been hard for you on your projects around the world? What I'm just suggesting, guys, is to really value the handcraft and the human hand labor. I think it's very important that people stop doing those studies of becoming a lawyer or becoming a banker when it's actually not something they would love. You know, we need to value how fabulous it is for the human to create with their hand. 
And that's what I really hope for the United States is to have schools and training so there's more young people interested about plaster work, about wood carving, about upholstery, embroidery, tassel making. You know, there can be so many, you know, and I really hope that in the new generations, they're going to really value what can be produced out of the human hand because they will be far more successful out of working with their hand than being a lawyer or a banker. Right. And we've talked about this on a couple of episodes. You know, in America, everybody's pressured to go to college, and that's not always the right solution for everyone. And they end exactly, up with a lot of it's, debt. Exactly. But in the meantime, no one can blame anyone. It's because it's been totally undervalued. You know, right. it's, it's uh, true. It's true. And it's amazing. Now you can have a plumber and an electrician who actually is making much more money than an actual banker. And the electrician or the plumber is actually much happier about their business right. than being a banker. Right. You know? But have you noticed in Paris that these traditions of handcrafts and artisanship are continuing or is it a problem in Paris as well? No, no, it, it is continuing. It is continuing. Okay. And thanks to the great groups, the Chanel group, the RVMH group, you mm -hmm. know, because out of having so much success, you know, with fashion, they are employing so many handcraft and they are keeping people trained and they're they are really keeping, you know, the French artisans alive, you know, and and forward, you know, mm -hmm. and, uh, and that's what I really wish in every country, you know, in right. Morocco, you have amazing artisanship, right. you go to India, it's unbelievable, you know, we really need to value what's made out of the human hand, because, for example, when you look at 18th century furniture, no one's really looking, or 19th century, you know, no one is really looking at it. If you had to manufacture those same pieces today, it will cost an absolute fortune. Right. We need to realize that those are one of, they're one of a kind, and how fan the level of quality of those pieces is unparalleled to anything that which can get manufactured today, you know? Right. But sometimes those antiques need to be refurbished or repaired or refinished. To have people who can know how to do that is a challenge. Like, I know when you're working in Paris or Morocco, you have those resources. But what about when you're doing your projects in Miami or Los Angeles? You have Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Mexico. They're beautiful. They do beautiful things in Mexico. Yeah, exactly. They have amazing handcraft also, you know. Mm -hmm. it's uh... So in other words, you're out looking for this all the time. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. Yes. And then also because I love the collaborations with any artisans, you know, certainly you share the same passion. And I don't know, there's a level of comfort, you know, and the level of interest, which is so high with any artisans you get to work with. Right. I want to ask you a little about your book, because to me, it was one of the things, as I said, is full of beautiful projects. But to me, the book is also very personal. I thought it was very daring of you. The first project in the book is your new offices in Paris. Yes. Now, very few designer, very few designers would open with their own offices. And then you have your house in Tangier. I believe it's your house in LA that's in the book. Is that correct? Yes. 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 So it is more personal probably than some other books. So were you apprehensive about that or... No, it's just that I had so many things to tackle, you know, in the last five years. And uh, thanks to COVID, because like that, you know, you could really be under the radar. But I had no website. I had a website which was under construction for so long. I had no social media presence. And I had that new office. I needed to move my entire crew. And so I decided to use the book as a great communication tool to make it very personal to anyone who, who would actually get the book and to exchange, you know, some very personal elements with the reader. 
having Pamela Golbin, who's one of my oldest friend mm -hmm. and best friend, writing the book. And we spend those fabulous moments, you know, her and I, you know, exchanging and really, it was just so we could communicate well, you know, with the reader. That's the reason why we share also so many of the vendors, you know, in those technical pages. It, yes, it you're was, very forthcoming really, with where you get source materials and yes, artisans and stuff, yeah, which I it, think is very... It's to promote everyone, you know, it's to really display, you know, whoever participates, you know, whoever maker, whoever brand, you know, participate to that ensemble needs to be sourced out, you know, it's, mm. uh, it's to share with everyone, you know. So I think it's always important that if you look for information that you can actually find it, you know, there's so many right. books where you look at beautiful things, but you don't even know who's done what, you know, it's right. a whole, you know, a whole glare, you know, and, uh, it's right. very important yet a transparency, you know, and, uh, and also to give information away. You know, I, right. I know that as a student, I would have loved to find all that information, right. you know, too. And also, if we want to keep these artisans and young people coming in, becoming artisans, we have to keep them employed. So, yes, I mean, I'm sure you keep a lot of people employed, but they're not on your staff full time here, these artisans. I'm very faithful to so many of them, you know, because you built really relationships with them, you know, and same thing again, you know, the more that you work with them, the more you need to push the envelope of finding new ideas. So their story moved up, you know, and my story moved up too. I do want to clarify one thing. When I say you open with your office, we are not talking about an open plan office in a skyscraper designed by like Gensler or some firm like that. I mean, this office is so... Beautiful. I, I would move Thank in. You. you know, I Thank would live you. there, Jean-Louis. It is. It's to show, you know, that when you want to create magic, you also need the environment to be quite magical, you know. And, and the thing is, as designers, we tend to do our apartment being the Taj Mahal. Right, that's your showcase, know? right. And the showcase. But the reality in life, and especially, you know, after a few years of hard work, is your great apartment, you go just there, you know, to sleep and to take a shower, you know, where <laughs> you where where you work all day, you know. It's like eight, nine, ten, or twelve hours a day. It's where you, you spend most of your time, you know. And so certainly I, I realized that I really needed to value the space where the synergy within the crew, when the level of comfort with everyone in the crew, there's not one bad seat, you know, and also where you have the clients coming over, where you work on a very private space, you know, on their home. And certainly, you know, you just, they're just coming into a, a very, it's an office. It doesn't try to mimic an apartment, you know, it's just a very cool office. I'm very happy about it, you know, very, yeah, beautiful. very happy. Thank you. We're taking a quick break to fill you in on some exciting news. Cherish now ships to Canada. We now have hundreds of thousands of chic and unique items ready to ship to our Canadian customers. Shop our favorites and join in the fun. And stay tuned for more announcements and even more offerings by visiting Cherish.com. That's C-H-A-I-R-I-S-H.com. Cherish.com. And now back to the show. And one of the things that really impressed me was like, even your office kitchen is beautiful. And it, it reminded me, I remember your, I think it was your first or second Paris apartment we published in El Decor when I was there. And yes. you had a tiny little kitchen. And I think you just kept the kitchen cabinets that were there, but then you covered them in silver. And I think that what people don't maybe appreciate about you, Jean-Louis, as much as they should, is how practical you are 
and innovative you are and your solutions. And I'd love to you to talk a little about your process of how you go about thinking about doing a design, doing the decor for a room or apartment. Like, what do you think about first? Is it the ceiling? Is it the floors? Because you have beautiful ceilings. I know you talked a little about the architecture, but what's the process like for you? The process first is I don't like waste. So if we're talking about sustainable design, you know, I think try first to do timeless design like that. You know, it doesn't need to be redone every five years, you know. Then sustainable design is to also be able to save whatever is savable on any site and obviously bring, you know, whatever is missing, whatever is lacking. But I really trust also about recycling the fact that, yes, there, there might be some elements. I never throw anything away. When I dismantle something out of an apartment, you know, which can be a piece of paneling or something, you know, which I always save it because I know that eventually mm -hmm. I'm going to reuse it somewhere else. The fact that I'm using so many antiques and so many vintage pieces, this is recycling also, you know, I'm not pushing for 1000% manufactured. That's the opposite. That's a way of being ecological, you know. But the way I think of a space is, as mentioned, you know, is really whatever stands out and which is good enough remains, you know, and sometimes it needs to have just a various finish, a different color. And then I worked on the floors, but it's just like, I don't know, it's all natural, you know, I don't know how to explain, you know, it's like, it's like a doctor, you know, who would just look at you or a great massage therapist, you know, who will know exactly where it's wrong, you know. Where the tension points like, are. <laughs> yes. And also, you know what it is, is uh, sometimes in design, designers can come with a preconceived idea about what they're going to do with the space. You cannot do that because it's as like if you were putting the wrong dress on the wrong woman, you know, it just doesn't work, you know. You really need to sit down in that space and to really feel and see how you can emphasize that space, how you can have the perfect answer so the whole thing become one. Because sometimes, you know, you come with a preconceived idea, you know, oh, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, you know, and it doesn't stick on, you know, it just doesn't stick. You need to let the space talk to you and you need to look at the light morning, afternoon, evening, you know, you need to look at the views, you know, you need to see if the circulations are great, you know, then furniture layout because... What's unbelievable is you can tell that sometimes you systematically put the furniture on the actual layout, you know, but if you turn the chair towards the window, then certainly when you sit in that chair, you have a totally different experience than if you have the chair being straight in the room, just like the layout. So it's to spend the time, you know, in each room to actually maximize the effect of each room. You know, that's my recommendation for tackling design is really to be really open-minded about what can go on. And then obviously you have to, to respect the client's requirement, but you just manage to meet in between. Right. And is it more of a challenge for you? Because you've done classic Paris apartments, you've done houses from the ground up, and you've done like in new development towers. Is, is it yes. harder for you to work in new spaces that don't maybe have the character or is it just a different uh, No, that's the opposite. That's the opposite because in new spaces, you know, you have to bring the character in, you know, and that's what's lovely, you know, it's, that's what's lovely. A blank canvas. Yes, and, and, and more rewards, you know, about <laughs> what you can achieve, you know. Yeah, because it's as like if you're bringing a history 
which has never really been there, you know, but then it still feels very adequate, you know, because it's still contemporary. We all know mm-hmm. it's a contemporary building, but certainly there's a sense of history which get brought in, you know, and it can be a 10-year history. It doesn't need to be a 100 years in mm-hmm. history. It's just to make sure that it doesn't look, you know, just brand new, you know, and right. I just like decor, you know, where you can't tell if it's made in the past, if it's part of the present, or if it's part of the future. I love the the time span, you know, to be a bit, you know, of a very nice, a very nice yeah, blur. It, you know? it seems like every project that you do has elements of the past. I mean, it I think does. they always has something new by a, like a new artist and a craftsman or Hervé van der Straat and these people who do beautiful things, you incorporate that, but you always have the past in there. And it's, I, it's all the ghosts living in me, you know? It's just like, <laughs> it's those many ghosts, you know, there's many in there, you know? So there's a lot to illustrate. I don't know, I think in, in my mind, I think that if you take, you know, a fabulous painter such as Picasso, before he, he was going to the idyllic abstraction, he painted, you know, the Pierrot, you know, the, right. you remember the very classical, you know, Harlequin, beautifully painted. And because he knew how to do those very academic paintings, then he could get far away from it, right. you know. And so I always suggest that if you know a bit about history, then you can play with it and then you can get away from it, you know. I think designing in a big no man's land of not really understanding what got done before must be a bit challenging. Yeah. And it's something we've talked on a few podcasts about young people aren't getting the design history education that maybe they should and how to work that in. And it's far less complicated than what you think. You know, it's just like style-wise, there's a different style every 50 years. So it's not that complicated, you know, really, you know. So if you go back to the 18th century, it means you probably need to learn 10 styles, you know, which is... And you'll see that the evolution of the style is very logic because it goes with the evolution of the politic. It goes with the evolution of the human being, you know. It goes with the evolution of technology. And so then you start reading and understanding the logic of the style evolution. It's all link, you know, it's not like a big mysterious world. Right, right. And there are certain periods, though, that you seem to return to a lot, like the 30s and 40s French style. I mean... Art Deco yeah, but I love, I love medieval. I love many things. I love art and craft. You know, I love secessionist period. You know, in uh, in Vienna. You know, I love. I love that. Too. I love. Yeah. Recently, yeah. you know, in the book, we redid the Yves Saint Laurent Dacha. You know, which was completely Russian style to the max. You know, and the clients with whom I worked in the past were not convinced that I would know how to do that. You know, it's just like, just go and play. You know, it's just like. Take as many designerists as you can, you know, that's how it's fun. And, and that's how you can really have a great evolution is by going through challenges, by going out of your comfort zone. It's super important. We have the chance in our business to literally go anywhere we want, style-wise. And so even if it's, you know, a bedroom, a guest bedroom, you know, a children's room, you know, you can take so many design risks. You can. Right. And have you found, now that you've, you're a global force, as I said, Jean-Louis. You know, you've worked around the world. It's, you've worked in India, you've worked in Russia, you've worked, you know, everywhere. At the, uh, in Hong Kong, a lot also, yes. A lot in Hong Kong. And I yeah. think Bangkok, there's a beautiful project in yes. Bangkok that you did. Lovely, yes. So have you found that the expectations of your clients are different in different countries? Like, do Americans have different expectations of you than French or 
your clients in Bangkok? The common thread is they always want something slightly French. And the great thing is because throughout the history, you know, there've been a lot of French colony, English colonies, you know, and things like that. I always find a way, you know, to link it, to link, you know, that European perfume, you know, with the local vibe, you know, so it's very contextual. I think, yeah, that's, that's probably the common thread because technologically, you know, all the taps are the same throughout the world. The air conditioning system is the same throughout the world. The construction techniques are really not very far from one country to the other, you know. So now the world is flat, you know, concerning the actual technology and access to what compose, you know, the renovation or the construction of an interior. The client's expectation, yeah, it's to... They want some of that European, you know, sophistication. Most of the time it's in brand new construction, you know, and they want us to bring those feeling of those old European mansion, but with a contemporary, you know, very fresh answer of a contemporary version of those classical mansions. Mm -hmm. And same for property developments. We're doing those, uh, as you mentioned, those uh, residential buildings where you have, you know, like, for example, in New York City, 375 units for sale at the Waldorf Astoria. So there's all the amenities, which is over 50,000 square feet that we design. And those 375 units has 180 different types. And we brought something, you know, where certainly is the reminiscence of the 30s, but making it feel quite contemporary. So it's easily adaptable, you know, to each person's style. So they don't have to demolish the whole thing as they come in. Same thing. Let's avoid waste, you know. So right. I think the design... The, and the it's a great design, history, the Waldorf. Yes, fantastic. Right. Fantastic. It's such a great DNA. And right. so in other buildings, which are brand new, it's to bring that kind of sense of DNA. It's to bring that sense of something slightly branded, but branded because it's got an atmosphere to it, because it's got that sense of of legitimacy to it. And I think by injecting a touch of history to many of the design, you know, just as a backdrop, just as a spine, it gives a lot of legitimacy to the actual exercise. And also the other thing that I think is interesting is all of your work around the world, it does seem, even though it's very you, it does seem specific to the location. Yes. You know, whether it's LA or Bangkok or a Manhattan Tower, there's always a sense that you know where you are. Yes. How do you manage that? Do you think about that? Is that something? It's so important. You know, it's just like if you take, you know, the local perfume, you know, of whatever you perceive, you know, it's your own perception of the local vibe, the local aesthetic. And uh, take it and you process it and you actually emphasize it and you you try to inject it in your design you know like for example that house in capri which is in the book you know mm -hmm. you know that the vesuvio is not very far you know that pompeii that great you know pre-roman you know time is not far you take those elements so pompeii is the mosaic and the straps you know that they were using you know for their sandals and then the vesuvio is the lava you know and uh, there's a lot of elements you can take like this and these old stones and things you know and you take all this and you inject it in your design and you make it almost like a caricature out of it to make sure that because people's attention spam is so low that you need to have the space to actually be instantly convincing. People don't take that. They can't spend three weeks to understand what you meant. You right. know, they need right. to spend three seconds and being already, you know, very enthusiastic about it. So, so that's by emphasizing the actual local vibe of how you feel about the local vibe. Right. 
And I'm curious how you do your research, because like you were saying, you sort of take all these different elements. Do you have a library at your office of things that you'd look at? And do you go to the site? How does it- You go to the site. Yeah, you go to the site. It's what's best, you know. And with your phone, you you snap a lot of little details and bits and pieces, you know, and and that's how you built up your story. It's by going to the site, you go to the next door town, the next door village. It takes no time, you know, it's very easy. Then you mix it with your own DNA, like that it's, it's not too far from home, you know, and then you have it. Right. What you just said, I found so intriguing, where you look the straps of the the sandals, but also Vesuvius, you take a poetic approach, I think. It's wide ranging. You're not, you don't have a set idea. You're open to influences. Because guys, at the end of the day, you know, we're all here for a good dream, you know? And so (laughs) it's like, we're all in for a good dream and for childhood dreams, you know? So we need to just like, turn it to a bit like almost like a little fairy tale each time. Yes. It's always convincing and it's always enchanting for everyone, you know, so so why not? You know, why taking everything super seriously? You know, no, it's just like, it needs to be captivating. Very well said. I think that's what you do, Jean-Louis, is you, well, your own projects that are in the book, which are stunning, but you also can Thank do you. that for a client, which is not always easy. I think a lot of, design, you know, Some clients are difficult. Some clients are fabulous or whatever. They give you a lot to work with, but you can manage. You know, with clients, you need to come gradually. You know, the problem of nowadays is uh, the clients wants to see the final result within a 3D. So what I suggest first is if you need to start, you know, with a renovation or with construction, start by doing the 3D, which shows the interior finishes with no furniture. Like that, the client already gets used to your idea of design by just discovering the whole exercise bit by bit, you know. If you try to show the entire exercise at the beginning, you know, first, it's too soon for you to mature your actual exercise. And second, it might be completely overwhelming for the clients to see something that they are not ready for. You right. Know? So you, you have need to entice them need- along. Exactly. It's super important because you are professional and they are not. There are things you understand. There are things they'll be slower to understand. It's normal. Very it's true. not their business. It's not what Very they do true. 24-7. And so by introducing bit by bit your idea of design in the right chronology, that's how you get there. That's how you get to your design and with the client approving one step at a time where you're going towards to. Yeah. Well, I don't think anybody wants to be presented with a fait accompli, you know, like exactly. this is what we're doing. Yes, exactly. Yes. And because they need to mature on their side too. I always tell my clients, I say, guys, if I give you, you know, exactly what you wish now, I'm going to get bored. You're going to get bored in two seconds. I'm here to show you what you're going to like in the next 15 years, 20 years. And if I really try to defend that idea, it's to do you good, you know. I'm not here to suggest something you would dislike at the end. Why would I gain out of it, you know? I'm defending that idea because I know you're going to love it. And you know what? In so many jobs, I can present a scheme for a room and the client is kind of like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> so that happens there to you is, too. 
oh, <laughs> so many times. And, and, and I push it, and I push it, and I push it, and I push it. And you know what? At the end, that's the room that they like the best, you know? So it's just try to figure that out, you know? It's the fear of the unknown, you know? The right. human being, you know, is paralyzed, you know, by the fear of the unknown. No, it's just, I just go with it, you know? That's how it's you It's kind of like that one. Diana Vreeland dictum. You got to give people what they don't know they want, you know? Exactly. Right. Exactly. Right. Oh, right. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, one final question, Jean-Louis. You were inspired by Henri Samuel. Believe it or not, you're of an age that you're inspiring to a lot of younger designers. And yeah, thank you. Designers your own age, even. So who do you admire and look to now? Who's, who's out there that you think they're just it, doing great it's work? It's just everyone, everyone who's working hard, you know, it's just because at the end of oh, the day, please. you know, <laughs> no, but it, it is true because the harder you work, you know, the more it translates in the results. So it's just like, yeah, it, it is, it's people who are actually highly dedicated to their mm-hmm. passion, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, and there's many of them. And I think the more you work, you know, the more it translates, you know, there's no other ways, you know, and the more it's perfected and you can tell. You can right. tell where something looks approximative and when something looks really, really well put together. And the very well put together is the attention to detail and it's the numerous amount of hours that you're actually spending around those details. Right, right. There's no substitute for doing the work. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's been such a pleasure to have my old friend, Jean-Louis, Thank with you, us Michael. here today. And Thank I encourage so everyone to go out and get his beautiful new book, Destinations. Destinations. Yeah, you'll have fun because there are many in here. It's it's really a great book. And thank you. Thank you. And thank everyone for listening to the Cherish Podcast. You've been listening to the Cherish Podcast brought to you, of course, by Cherish, which was recently voted by the readers of USA Today as the best place to shop online for furniture and home decor. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend or colleague. Or better yet, go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. We appreciate your help in spreading the word. And we would love your ideas for future episodes. Please email us at podcast at cherish.com. The Cherish Podcast is produced by Britta Muller and engineered by Hangar Studios in New York. Until next time. Music.